Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Tews, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this time in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, uh, <laughs> appropriately enough, we're going to be talking about Australia and the Australian economy. But first, uh, we're going to do something more from the news. And actually, before we even get to that, I just actually wanted to make a quick note that uh, we will be doing a live event October 25th in New York City. So you can find tickets at the Foreign Policy website. Uh, back to the data point for this week. The news data point is four, as in 4%, which is the share of the vote that the far-right Brothers of Italy party got in Italy's most recent national election. Uh, that was in 2018. And uh, Italy's holding another election this coming weekend. And the latest polls suggest the party could win 25%. That would make it the country's largest party and its leader, Georgia Maloney, the country's new prime minister. Georgia Maloney presents herself as a true Italian and as a Christian mother. She favors more stringent security measures and is strongly opposed to immigration. Beyond the Italian borders, her message and decidedly Eurosceptic stance are causing alarm. The news here is that Maloney would be taking power as leader of a right-wing coalition and, and more specifically as leader of a party, the Brothers of Italy, that's a direct descendant of the fascist party of Benito Mussolini, the Italian dictator who formed an alliance with Nazi Germany during World War II. So Maloney claims her party has left fascism behind, but there's plenty of symbolic traces of fascism still surrounding the party. It still displays the tricolor flame that belonged to the fascist movement, and Maloney herself has praised Mussolini as a good politician. So given all that symbolism, we thought we'd take a, a look at the economic substance of fascism, both in its contemporary form, but also its classical forms, I guess. Uh, so Adam, let's start with a bit of history here. Um, did the classical fascists have a unified economic program at all? I mean, was fascism a, a coherent economic idea in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to say simply no. I mean, to speak about classical fascism is, you know, almost a contradiction in terms. It was it was a kind of messy movement. Some people even dispute the fact that national socialism in Germany and Italian fascism really should be sort of lumped together. Let's just, for sake of argument, say that we can treat them that way, then I think you can distinguish some elements. Many of them are negative. So, you know, one thing the fascists definitely were is they were anti-socialist and they were also anti-liberal. So they were simultaneously anti, you know, big government social democracy, let alone communism and anti-free market liberalism. And the link between the two for them is actually kind of logical. So they blame 
laissez-faire economics for the rise of socialism. You don't get one without the other. Um, so they were anti-laissez-faire in the end because that, that was, as it were, the source of all evil. That had to be stopped, but not in a socialist way. So the crucial thing is they don't favor class conflict. They don't favor the overthrow of the existing social structure by means of aggressive class conflict. They, on paper, they favor class collaboration. So both the Italian fascist movement and Nazi Germany established labor fronts. They provide quite elaborate forms of incorporation for the working class. Both of them are trying to find ways in which workers can be brought into the body politic. This is one of the lessons of World War One that you can't be a powerful state if you cannot incorporate the working class. And every critic, every left critic of fascism ever since has pointed out that in practice, this effort to incorporate the workers was very one-sided and it tended to be on the terms of big business, which in one way or another was at least sort of turned a blind eye or in some cases very actively supported the rise of fascism. So you could even read the regimes as very one-sided forms of class rule. And it's quite wrong, I think, to analyse fascism as many people tended to do in the past only in terms of its peacetime manifestations. I don't really think you see the essence of fascism until you see conquest, until you see imperialism. And what that means in practice in both cases is not just a matter of conventional military conquest, but but the explicit espousal of racial hierarchy. So these really are very late stage white supremacist regimes, completely overt appropriation of racial superiority logic and genocidal practices. So if you wanted a single thing that really defined what the fascist economic reality was, you'd say it was war making for the purposes of racial conquest. Which then, of course, turns out to be a self-destructive program because it rallies against both regimes, the forces of an overwhelming coalition, which crushes them. So another thing you could say about fascism is that it's sort of suicidal. When it's actually acted out, it leads to its own destruction. It's not to that extent a, a realistic politics that can ever be really sustained over the long run, which then begs again the question of whether you can really ever speak of a realized program because it's only ever going to really be a crisis regime yeah okay that that's a sort of philosophical question whether that's a coherent uh, economic idea yeah exactly. um but yeah. I, I guess i wonder traditionally then what is the social base of fascist movements i mean on one hand we might think of it as a variety of right-wing populism that that kind of is a working class phenomenon but yeah you mentioned it's avowedly non-socialist and you know, the industrial working class was the social base for communist parties at the same time. Um, you know, these were the enemies of fascism. So is there another kind of form of underclass that the fascists were drawing on, one that's maybe less emancipatory than the than the, the communist working classes? Yeah, I mean, this is a crucial point to clarify, I think, because in the current debate, in the 21st century debate about new right politics, populism and so on, the image that we have is that of the left behind, the disenfranchised, the frustrated, post-industrial working class, right? That's the kind of classic image. And it's exemplified perhaps pioneeringly by Le Pen, the Le Pen movement that has gone through various incarnations in France, which has, to a very considerable extent, gobbled up the white working class French vote that, you know, in the past might have gone to the French Communist Party, which was still a force in France until the 1990s. Classically, what fascism, however, represented was an anti-socialist, anti-communist movement, which to an extent limited its ability to appeal to a wider population. This was particularly the case in Italy, in fact, the first phase, first wave Italian fascism, the movement that came out of 1919 and took power 100 years ago in October 1922. That movement was very petty bourgeois. 
So they were subordinate groups, you could say, in the sense that these are not the dominant capitalist classes who were in the fascist squads, smashing heads, you know, destroying trade union offices. We're talking about uh, small shopkeepers, small business people, farmers, uh, farm managers who are mobilized by landlords and sometimes by large industrial interests for the purposes of doing battle against the working class. What is interesting about National Socialism, because Nazism took power not in 1923 in the Beer Hall Putsch, but 10 years later in 1933 as an electoral movement. So that movement was different from the Italian fascist movement in that it had to succeed electorally. And so it was, in fact, still biased towards lower middle class and middle class voters, but in fact, highly successful in also gaining the votes of considerable numbers of German working class voters. Not unemployed, they went to the communists, but um, rank and file working class voters as well. And that's interestingly the model that we see in Italy today. So it's not easy to find data on the electoral preferences of Italians in the current moment. But I got lucky with the help of some friends on Twitter. I'll be putting out the data on Chartbook on the newsletter um, in the next couple of days. But what those data show is that the uh, Fratelli d'Italia, the, 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 this new far-right movement that Maloney heads, um, is remarkable precisely for the breadth of its base. So one of the things which I think accounts for the Fratelli d'Italia's surge in recent polling is precisely that they escape class ghettos, if you like and have been able to position themselves as a party that's going to get about 20 to 25% of the vote across a very wide segment of Italian society. Everything to the right of centre seems to be fair game for them. Yeah, as I mentioned, I mean, if you trace the lineage here, you would see that the Brothers of Italy is a, is a kind of direct descendant of Mussolini's. But I wonder what specific traces of fascism ideologically are still evident. You could say that there is a direct line through. So they play this game of, you know, of course we're not descendants from fascism, but then under the hand, as they might say, you know, uh, off camera or sometimes on camera, there will be toasts to Mussolini. Senior figures will be attending commemorations of Mussolini's march on Rome. Um, Maloney herself as a young politician was an overt, uh, an apologist for and indeed a supporter of Mussolini's legacy. And this isn't confined to the extreme right. I mean, Berlusconi in 2003 happily told the British newspaper, The Spectator, that, you know, that Mussolini, quote unquote, never killed anyone and that his prison camps were like holiday venues uh, where people took, you know, breaks from their political careers. Um, yes, in many respects now, their ideology is essentially that of a conservative party, not very different from the GOP in the United States. But nevertheless, they take this a whole notch further, right? They do actively associate themselves with a lineage which goes back to a dictator who led Italy into war in World War II. And, and this isn't true of any of the analogues. So it's not true in Hungary, for instance. Orban is quite careful to distance himself on key issues from Horthy, very careful to align himself, um, quite sensibly condemning the involvement of Hungarian writers in the Holocaust. Um, likewise, in Poland, there isn't a direct link that runs through um, to the current nationalist uh, movements in Poland and the politics of extreme nationalism in the interwar period. This willingness to directly appropriate the fascist past is quite particular to Italy. Yeah, I mean, it does strike me that one of the consistent through lines of fascist policy has been anti-parliamentarism. Uh, and yeah, and sure enough, true to form, the Brothers of Italy argue for a constitutional reform in Italy that would create a directly elected, presumably more empowered president. Um, so is there any economic substance associated with this kind of 
reform our legislatures a, a hindrance to economic action of, of some kind? Um, the reasons they advocated are quite interesting. One of the reasons they want presidentialism is they think that it will free the public square. So it'll be more plebiscitary, essentially, right? So the Italian population, if they directly elect a president, will speak directly their mind rather than having everything filtered through these extraordinary backroom deals that are done when they the parliament goes through the process of picking the president and the president then becomes this arbiter of the parliamentary game. And I think they want to break all of that. I mean, the funny thing is, of course, the Frelitelli themselves are born out of Italian parliamentary politics. Um, and what exactly would they have in mind? I mean, there aren't a lot of straightforwardly presidential regimes for obvious reasons, I think. I mean, the most common model of a presidentialism is that you have a directly elected president and then you have a Congress and parliament, which is also directly elected. And whether or not this is, you know, makes for straightforward governance or easy decision making depends on whether or not you can get the two aligned, right? In the moments that you can, you can get a lot done. But of course, as we've seen many times in the United States and also France, you can also end up, as it were, split against each other. Um, for, if you're looking for, and if your idea, as it were, of good government for the purposes of making decisive economic changes or imposing tough policies which are unpopular, you're probably best off with a first-past-the-post Westminster-style system, right, which means the government automatically has a mandate and the system is geared towards, at least in a two-party form, delivering a large majority to whoever happens to win. Hasn't always worked, even recently in the United Kingdom, but it's often delivered that kind of outcome. I think Italy's problem is it has multiple overlaying different types of economic problem. And so it's not clear you know, whether one particular constitutional form will be better than the other. It has simultaneously a huge debt problem that needs to be managed. doesn't need to be run down necessarily, but it needs to be carefully managed, for which purposes you need to stay on good terms with Brussels. And on the other hand, it also has deep structural problems which manifest themselves in slow growth for which you would probably want deep consensual agreement of many political parties to long-term programs, which would suggest a different type of political structure. So uh, it's difficult to know really where Italy heads on this score. I mean, another fact about fascism in the 20th century, at least in the early 20th century, it seemed like a young person's project, but Italy is such an overwhelmingly aging society. So you know, what is the attraction of a kind of potentially revolutionary, actionistic, you know, even avowedly violent movement for an aging population like Italy's? This is a really important point, and it does go again to the heart of the difference between fascism now and historical classic fascism, right? I mean, if two things defined historic fascism, one was the fear of communist revolution and the reaction to it. In Italy, that was a very concrete fear. There was a very powerful communist party in the aftermath of World War One and a major strike wave, the so-called famous Red, red Years, um, to which fascism responded. And the other defining experience of the period was total war, World War One, and, and that may be led by elderly men in uniforms, but total wars are fought by young men. I mean, the Fratelli celebrates natalism. So what they would like is a return to the age in which young people had more babies. But this is, as it were, middle-aged and, and, uh, politics. It's not, a, it's not an elderly politics. So older Italians who were shaped by the politics of the 70s, 80s and early 90s tend to vote for the PD. But Italians in the age group 35 to 64 are most likely to vote for the Fratelli. So stressed middle-aged people. Young Italians who you might think would be, you know, attracted by this, you know, appeal of sporting, youthful, healthy Italy, overwhelmingly young voters under the age of 24 dramatically favor the PD over and the five star over the Fratelli. So it's a sort of 
it seems like a kind of almost a politics of nostalgia for a better youth, for a better Italy in support for this formerly marginal party. Yeah, I mean, and finally, I mean, one of yeah, one of the expressions of this conservatism, I suppose, is that the the Brothers of Italy claims to be committed to the European Union as a project, which, given its fascist lineage, seems to be a, a kind of potential contradiction in various ways. But that that got me wondering: is it conceivable that there could ever be a kind of pan-European fascism as a political project? Well, I think the idea of a conflict here is, you know, is sort of is obvious in the sense that fascists are nothing if not nationalists, and so how could you construct a pan-Europeanism out of a nationalism? But in fairness to fascism in its history, it's always had this dimension, right? I mean, in 1936, there was the anti-Comintern pact in response to the Popular Fronts declared by the Comintern in that period, which linked Nazi Germany and Italy and Imperial Japan as well. And the Holocaust is a collaborative effort, right? Led by the Germans, but it's a collaborative effort of European anti-Semites and fascists pursuing the genocidal destruction of the Jewish population of Europe. And in the emergent European new right of the 1980s as well, we see the same strain, uh, an emphasis on common European heritage now pitched more often than not against the Islamic world as the great other. And it's striking that Meloni, unlike Salvini and the Lega, who were the previous champions of the far right in Italian politics, is true to this legacy in the sense that she's a stronger Atlanticist than uh, Salvini was. She's she's much more aligned. And this also, I think, is going to make her more, as it were, quaffable and acceptable. It's also, however, of course, true that Italian politicians have to be pragmatic. They know, A, that the Italian electorate is still majority pro-European. So a strong anti-European position marginalizes you. And they know also that Italy de facto is dependent on EU support, notably support from the ECB. And I think, you know, here we are going to see Rome, whatever government emerges, looking to negotiate a deal, essentially a modus vivendi. And you could say this too has history, right? Because Mussolini in the 1920s was not the radical that he became in the 30s. He was a radical at home, he destroyed the Italian left, but he was a darling of Wall Street and quite deliberately cultivated foreign finance in the 20s. So, you know, this doesn't necessarily differentiate you from the classic, from the from the classic Italian fascist model. But that kind of pragmatism, I think, is uh, what we're going to see. Okay, uh, we do need to leave it there, but we will be back in a second to talk about Australia. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents. And I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. 
What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is 29, as in 29 years, which is the amount of time that Australia had managed to avoid a recession before experiencing one during the pandemic. So that was an unbroken stretch from 1991 to 2020 of continued economic growth. Our record run of 28 consecutive years of economic growth has now officially come to an end. The cause, a once in a century pandemic. The effect, a COVID-19 induced recession. There's no real news peg here, aside from the fact that I mentioned Adam is in Australia right now. So we figured this was just a good opportunity to continue our periodic series on the economies of the world's countries. So, uh, Adam, one of the things that I remember learning about Australian history is that the modern state has its origins as a British penal colony. You know, it strikes me that that could make the country a kind of natural experiment in the effects of, of human capital. And so are there any legible effects of starting with a population of ex-prisoners? It's a fascinating question. It's worth just for our listeners' sake pointing out that uh, the reason why Australia's history started that way is American independence, right? Because America had previously been the penal colony. Mm-hmm. And it was it was American independence that shut the the American dumping grounds to the British. Oh, The British in the late 18th and early 19th century were engaged in you know, a historically significant phase of class justice. So as early industrialization, as early capitalism took hold in the Great Britain, without the apparatus of a modern police state, the British ruling class by means of the courts engaged in a truly ferocious program of disciplining one element of which was just a huge surge in capital punishment with people being hung, you know, right, left and center, a huge surge in, in execution. And on the other hand, then the creation, especially after the Napoleonic Wars of an early prison system based around old ships, so the so-called hulks, and those prisoners were then, those that were spared the death penalty, became liable for deportation. And between 1788 and 1868, about 162,000 convicts, of which the majority were men, but a significant fraction, about 20,000, I think, women, were moved as well. And and that group forms the core of the early labor regime around the British authorities. They have provided a kind of happy hunting ground for 
speculation about the quality of this population, its educational level, its so-called human capital, its physical properties. People try and measure their heights to see whether they could be perhaps more or less well-nourished than other populations. There's an entire industry and, you know, getting into the prison records to see whether you can determine, as it were, any obvious attributes. They are clearly a selected population in that the colonial authorities got to pick the sort of people they needed. In other words, they would prefer people with convicts with uh, records in the construction industry. And on the other hand, also the grueling passage from Britain all the way to Australia constituted, if you like, a kind of brutal selection process of those who were physically fit and not bringing various types of uh, liability to illness with them the vast majority of the convicts survive, particularly in the early transports. Um, death rates rise as the transports become more regular and dense, but the vast majority do survive. The question really is, when they get there, are they significantly different from the people who chose voluntarily to make this travel, this this huge journey across, you know, halfway around the world, which were themselves obviously tending to be an ambitious, entrepreneurial, adventurous uh, group. And whether those differences, if there are any, are really large enough to explain what happens next. And I think right now one has to say that the Australian historians have dug themselves into, you know, down quite a rabbit hole on this. And, you know, any claims to huge differences between the convict population and those who moved voluntarily I think have now been attenuated to a considerable extent. Certainly the convict population are not inferior in every obvious sense to those who moved voluntarily. And if you look all the way through to the present day in the early 21st century, estimates vary. The highest number I've seen is that 20% of Australians can claim what is now, as it were, an honorific uh, relationship to the convict population. But a more credible number I've seen is about just over 2 million documented cases of Australians who can trace their heritage all the way back to the early 19th century. So that would be just about 10% of the Australian population, which is a significant portion, but but hardly enough to explain Australia's extraordinary success story in the late 20th, early 21st century. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mentioned at the top this remarkable stretch of almost 30 years of avoiding a recession, which is pretty unique, uh, I think, among Western countries. And got me wondering what happens to national politics in the absence of of recessions <laughs> in this way i mean does the bitterness get drained out of politics when you don't have economic downturns and and, and moreover just what what is the secret to their success anyway adam i mean what can we learn from australia so i think if you're trying to explain a remarkable success story like this it's basically kind of got three components right good fundamentals external drivers and then sort of resilience to see you through the shocks and Australia's happy story is a kind of a combination of all three of those. So as for fundamentals, it went through a kind of market-orientated opening up series of reforms in the 1980s and 1990s, which in certain sectors, at least, will give you one-off gains in efficiency. Uh, then also Australia remains a magnet for migration. I mean, between 1990, when the success story begins, and 2020, the population of Australia increases by 50%, so from 17 million to 25 million somewhat over a quarter of uh, economic growth in Australia in any given year is due to increased labour input. So if you adjust the GDP numbers for GDP per capita, the story is a little less impressive than it seems, right? Because part of what's going on here is what economists call extensive growth. Then Australia gets lucky, right? It benefits from the great surprise, the great economic historical shock of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, which is China. 
uh, Australia had done very well out of Japan's rise from the 60s onwards, right? Because Japan has to get its iron ore from somewhere and it comes from Australia. But if you like, China arrives precisely at the moment that Japan's growth story grinds to a halt and provides Australia with a far, far bigger driver of growth. That then drives investment, notably in mining, the population growth and rising rapid incomes and investment drive a real estate boom. So Sydney and Melbourne become two of the cities which are attracting huge amounts of foreign investment, which helps drive a real estate bubble. And then to manage all of this, you have, you know, a competent national economic policy. Uh, Australia avoids mistakes. I mean, it runs down its debt in the early 2000s. So by 2008, it's in a very free space for, you know, doing stimulus packages, for instance. It has a flexible exchange rate. So when it does suffer a shock to its exports, the exchange rate adjusts and other parts of the Australian economy become more competitive. So this is a success story in many ways. But, but as you say, the question is, does this drain bitterness out of politics? You might think, you know, and this is always in some senses the liberal promise that a growing cake would make everything easier. And that really hasn't been the case in Australia because economic growth generates severe tensions. And the most severe of those in Australia, it's very fascinating, have been around climate. It's maybe kind of news to a North American audience, but the United States is not the only country with serious climate wars. And Canada in North America is another. And Australia is really the third amongst the you know British settler colonial projects in the extended sense. All three have this contested climate politics. Three Australian prime ministers have been felled since 2010 for trying to cut emissions in various ways. And a key element in this poisonous political atmosphere is the media sphere, right? Because the granddaddy, you know, the spider in the web of right-wing global media is, is Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, and Rupert Murdoch's an Australian, and it's you know ground zero for that kind of politics of right-wing media is Australia. 59% of the print media in Australia are controlled by Murdoch, and that makes for an intensely poisonous, polarised atmosphere, so much so that Kevin Rudd, for instance, the former Labour Prime Minister, started a massive online poll to convene a royal commission to investigate the impact on Australian politics of Murdoch's media sphere. So economic growth by itself does not, as it were, solve your problems. Economic growth can be drive problems for democratic politics. And the economics of the media, which in some senses you could say that Murdoch's an Australian success story, after all, from a purely business point of view, but in terms of the health and, as it were, of Australian democracy, it's a very mixed legacy indeed. Somehow that's very dispiriting that even with permanent growth, we'd still have kind of, we'd be at each other's throats. Well, there's a good news story is that in the most recent election in, in Australia, reason broke through. The so-called teal faction of the conservative Liberal Party insisted that it too wanted to do climate politics. It was rather important in breaking the the deadlock on the conservative side. And if you're looking for an example of how the conservative party, the GOP in the United States, might be able to break its way out of this bunkered in impasse of a position that it currently has on climate, Australia is actually rather an interesting case of how that could possibly happen. Okay, so a bit on, on Australian geography. I mean, most of the territory of Australia is taken up by desert. This is the sort of proverbial outback that comprises the entire interior of the country, uh, pretty much. So is that uh, just a, a desert region a burden on the Australian economy, or does the desert contribute to Australia's economic success somehow? 
Yeah, I think if you were nitpicking, you would say that the desert desert, like proper sandy desert, is only about 13% of Australia. But the arid part in the you know, desert in the more extended sense is indeed about 69% of the Australian, the giant Australian landmass. I mean, almost all of Australia's population lives in the coastal regions. It's one of the most urbanized and highly concentrated populations in the world, which you'd never think, right, looking at it, 25 million people in that giant territory you'd think they'd be very loosely populated but in fact it because of the adverse conditions at the heart of the country the population's all on the coasts and in the coastal areas of course you have famous sites of cultural production like sydney and and major financial centers but it's actually true that the core if you like of the wealth of australia is in the desert zones and that's essentially because australia's deserts quote unquote are immensely rich in natural resources so it has one of the largest mining industries in the entire world. So Australia is the world's largest producer of iron ore and bauxite, the second largest producer of gold, manganese and lead, the third largest producer of zinc, cobalt, uranium, the fifth largest producer of salt, the sixth largest producer of copper and nickel, the eighth largest producer of silver. And you could go on and on and on, right? So that desert is essentially a multi-billion dollar I mean, uh, economy. I mean, a large part of China's industrialization is driven by basically digging up Australia, sticking it in large ships and transporting it to East Asia. So, okay, the image of this outback is this backwater is actually the opposite. It's actually, you know... It's a gold mine. Um, okay. I, w- I also wanted to ask if there's any material meaning to Australia's membership in the British Commonwealth. I mean, we you were mentioning how Australia's you know, clearly situated in the Asia Pacific region has benefited from that. But do its Western cultural ties make it stand out in any clear economic way? Well, well, you're right, of course. I mean, Australia is in the Pacific. But from the point of view of the British Empire, which birthed modern Australia, as we know it, white Australia, I mean, that was an empire in which the sun never set. And that just means that if you're a major British possession in the Pacific, then you may be a long way from Britain and Europe, but you are much closer to Canada and much closer to India. And Australia's economy is originally entirely founded on trade with Britain and migration from Britain. So through World War II and its aftermath, the UK entirely dominated Australian trade. It might seem weird because it's such a long way away, but 50% of Australia's trade, if not more, was with Britain all the way through to the 1950s. It's not until the 60s that gravity, that geographic gravity takes over and that Asia begins to dominate Australian trade. And now, of course, it accounts for about 70% of Australia's trade. And the same is true for migration. So in 1901, when when Australia emerges as a quasi-independent state within the British imperial structure, um, it also adopts the white Australia policy. So Australia is marked, its population, its economy is marked by this deep attachment historically a century ago to the British Empire. And at that point, 90% plus of the inhabitants of Australia were British or Irish heritage. And it's not really until the 1960s that Australia begins to open up to Asian migration because the purpose of white Australia was to, of course, first of all, to marginalise and exclude from Australia's identity the Aboriginal population. And then on the other hand, to exclude Asians as potential rivals in the settlement of this so-called quote-unquote empty space, right? Um, But from the 60s onwards, the Australian government abandons this policy, embraces Asian migration, and between 1961 and 1996, the share of the Australian population that's of Asian birth goes from 0.3 to 5.5% of the population, and today it's 13.4% of the population. And many of those 
Asian migrants to Australia are Indian, so from within the Commonwealth, um, not just from China, which is one might imagine as the overwhelming driver of this. So the basic point, the basic answer to your question is that even today, despite its location, Australia remains a white majority country on the edge of Asia. And that is the long run historical consequence of this profound attachment. So finally, uh, I'll outsource the last question to my kids. I mentioned Australia to them, and my son uh, brings up kangaroos. So, uh, yeah, what the heck? Uh, uh, I thought I'd ask, do kangaroos have anything uh, to teach us about economics? And I guess just to help you along here, I'm thinking specifically about the economics of conservation. It seems like in the absence of hunting kangaroos, they've kind of become an environmental menace in Australia. I don't know, are there any sort of broader lessons that could be learned about that applied elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, Australia is, you know, an extraordinary experimental ground for environmental change. I mean, and, and not to be too grim about it, but on the one hand, of course, the genocidal project of the extinction of a native population or the attempted destruction of a native population by white settlers on the one hand. And on the other hand, the disturbance of native populations through European farming practices. And as the European settlers eliminated the apex predators from the uh, Australian food chain, kangaroos suddenly found themselves favoured. They also like, you know, cleared grazing grounds. You know, if Europeans will happily come along and create pastures for cattle, then the kangaroos love it even more. And the kangaroo are faster than the cattle and more dynamic. And so uh, Australia's ended up with an entirely unbalanced ecosystem in which the kangaroo population surges and then crashes depending on droughts, which afflict Australia with greater and greater severity as a result of climate change and culling efforts by the government. And so it, it's a truly extraordinary story. So we think there were maybe 60 million kangaroos in 1980, which then crashed to 15 million by 1989, recover to um 27 million by 2009, peak at 53 million in 2013, and now we think they're back down to 42 million. So 42 million is like twice as many kangaroos as there are people uh, in, in Australia. Um, they're obviously not in the cities, but, but everywhere else and in the outback, of course, um, on a huge scale. So it's a massively dynamic, hugely unbalanced ecosystem, and to that extent, um, really rather a, a telling emblem, if you like, of the world that we inhabit today. And runaway kangaroo populations are, are one of the things that Australia does have to contend with. Yeah, this sounds dangerous. I hope. Uh, be careful out there, Adam. But uh, otherwise, um, we will leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. 
Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.